My partner, John, and I tackled this case from Patterson, New Jersey, anti-violence activist by the name of Najee Seabrooks, who lunged at police with a knife. As a result, a lot of bad information was spread throughout the community about how the whole thing went down. We take the 911 call and analyze that from top to bottom. We take the officer's body cam and show that the negotiations lasted for quite a while. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube and Rumble channels if you're not already there. Download the podcast if you're not already there. You can also find us on Instagram at the underscore com underscore center. Enjoy this episode, which originally aired March 30th, 2023. City council members announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. We're calling for defunding the police. Shootings in New York City have more than doubled this year. Here in the comm center with Drew Breezy. That's Drew, my co-host over there. 29 years of police and dispatch experience. And we're going to break down a case tonight that's going to be one for the ages. This is something huge that's happening in the state of New Jersey, in the city of Patterson to be specific. And this is, I don't know if this shooting flew under the radar or as you'll see, maybe you'll know why, but it does seem that The attorney general in New Jersey has taken control of the Patterson Police Department as a result of this shooting and some other things that have gone on. And so we just want to have an open and frank discussion about what our observations are about this shooting to include the 911 calls and the negotiations. John is a 911 dispatcher and a trained and certified negotiator in the continental United States, I believe. Yep, I could do all of North America and parts of South America. That's correct. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this case. I watched uh, four and a half hours of footage from the Patterson Police Department to obtain this footage. Something that we've done differently this time than what we have done in the past is instead of scouring the Internet for articles and newsreels and kind of breaking down, breaking down the news about it, I was able to find out that if you contact the Attorney General's office in the state of New Jersey, that they can provide certain downloadable links. So what I was graciously given by the attorney's office in New Jersey was essentially all the downloadable media from the case. So that was four and a half hours of body cam footage from at least seven different vantage points. Tonight, we're going to use at least four of those. Also included was there's essentially five 911 calls. There's seven audio clips in total. At one point, the suspect in the case is uh, calling nearby police departments because he's not satisfied with what he's getting from Patterson. So essentially, the setup to the story is this, is that uh, one night, uh, Najee Seabrooks uh, comes home at about two in the morning, and he seals himself up inside his room. And uh, early in the morning, uh, he's having some kind of mental health crisis, and uh, the police are called at around seven in the morning. It takes police officers a while to respond because as dispatchers and police officers know, there's always quite a bit going on. They were finally able to get on scene with two police officers. They arrived on scene. And what they found as they arrived on scene to a threats call was family members of Najee Seabrooks waiting outside. They were they flagged down the officer. 
And at first, the officer was confused. She thought that she was actually having two calls in the same building until she realized the family members flagging her down outside were also asking for an ambulance for Najee Seabrooks because own words in the words of her brother and another female there on the scene that uh, he had possibly ingested some cannabis, smoked something bad, and that it was, it was affecting his mental state. At the point that the police officers arrived in the building, Mr. Seabrooks was already essentially locked inside the bathroom. Officers arrived on scene. They found out what was going on with him. As I said, I, that he had been smoking something the night before, and he was not responding to calls from family to come out. Najee Seabrooks' mother, other family members, and a child were all there inside the, the apartment when the officers arrived. And the body cam footage for us to break down essentially starts when the officer makes first contact at the door where Seabrooks is barricaded inside a bathroom. Just, what we put together is I, I took the information from the attorney general's office, the 911 calls, and I put it together in one video. It was very difficult to get through four and a half hours and find a way to present this to you because we're primarily a podcast. And when you listen to the body cam footage from Patterson PD, what you mostly hear are various police officers at different times standing outside the door saying Najee's name and saying, please come out. For over four, almost four and a half hours, police officers at different times are begging him, asking him to come out. He will talk about some of the negotiation tactics they use, uh, some of the uh, other tactics uh, like third-party intermediaries, which are somewhat unusual for situations like this. And you'll see that the claims that be, are being made by the media that Najee Seabrooks was denied access to people who cared about him, namely his colleagues at his anti-violence action committee or league that he worked for, that he was being denied access to be able to talk to anyone besides the police was simply not true. Uh, we'll break down some of that in terms of who he was allowed to talk to in addition to police in the scene. We know this is a, a difficult case. And I guess before we present anything, I do want to say that having watched all of it, I want to say that I'm sorry that Mr. Seabrooks has passed away. This is a regrettable incident. The police didn't want this to happen. I didn't want this to happen. And one thing that I viewed when I viewed all of this footage was I heard his mother cry. I heard his mother talking to him and sobbing and begging for him to come out. Whatever you think of the protests and things that have come out of this and whatever you think of Mr. Seabrooks and whatever you else you want to say about him, he was a human being that his family loved, his mom loved him. And it's a shame that he's dead and, and we're, we're not here to make light of that, but we want to correct some of the narrative that's been in the news that the police officer simply showed up and in typical police fashion, according to the news, as they just went in their guns blazing. What you'll see from Patterson PD is an amazing display of patience and empathy and going to almost any lengths constantly to find a way to reach Mr. Seabrooks, to find a way to convince him to cooperate. Unfortunately, it was unsuccessful, but you can see that every single person who talks to him particularly if you watch the full unedited four and a half hours as I did, has a heart for intervening in the crisis and driving a positive change. And if you're a negotiator and certainly a police officer, you can't enter any situation like this unless you have the belief that you can affect a positive outcome. And I saw that from every single police officer that spoke to him. And quite a few of those are in this footage we'll show you tonight. I, I really felt the same way when I watched the footage and I, you know, it seems like we take one step up and two steps back and it's not necessarily because of what we're doing wrong, but it doesn't matter if it's right. Sometimes it's and you know, there, there's a whole issue behind body worn cameras that we're probably going to discuss tomorrow. I mean, like, do we need, <laughs> if the public is clamoring for them as they are, I think they probably, they being the public 
probably need to start believing what they see when when they see it. It's it's like you can't have it both ways. And I think the other part of that problem is they don't know what they're looking at. So they they can just pick it apart, but it's not you know we're trained differently. But one piece one piece of footage that they show constantly, and it's and it's less than two seconds. Was the door to the bathroom is open, and you see Mister Seabrooks inside, and they fire a less lethal round, and there's a reason for them to do that. It's not because they want to hurt him or they want to be mean. And he says, "Oh, you're going to come at me like that." And it's sort of a, an aggressive interplay, and it makes it seem like Seabrooks is makes him seem like he's uh, outraged or angry, and it certainly makes him seem like he's in his full right mind. But as we'll as we break down this case, you could say that it's a mental health crisis. There's certainly something going on with him, but uh, we'll show the reason for the less lethal discharge. All right, I, I don't want to switch gears completely. I want to give a little background here, in addition to your background. This is something else that we didn't discuss. Uh, Patterson Police has, have had their own problems. In, in namely in, let's see, what year was that? 2017, there was four officers, a sergeant and three officers who were indicted federally for stealing money, basically for tossing drug dealers and, and taking their money and stealing their money. You know, I could read you the whole case, but I won't. I'll spare you that. I, I can tell you that the, the sergeant received prison time I think all four of them pled to something. I, I don't, I'm not sure what the other three got, but I know that the sergeant got prison time for, you know, they greed always gets the best of them anyway. Look, how many times we have to say it? There's the only thing we hate more as good cops are bad cops. And they were weeded out. But the problem is that violates the trust of the community. And so just after that, or maybe just before that, uh, I'm not sure what the timing is. I think the mayor was indicted on a separate issue. The community's in turmoil. Once all that happens, you've lost credibility at that point. <laughs> and no one's going to believe anything you say. And like I said, no one's going to believe the body-worn camera that's literally right in front of you. You, you know, this is the video that you wanted. You know, Najee Seabrooks was an anti-violence activist within his community. He was trying to do what he could to to curb the violence or the, even, you know, police violence or, or whatever, however it was perceived. And he was killed by police. So obviously that's going to upset a lot of people right off the bat. But you have to understand that there was a reason behind what happened, which the media portrayed as just willy-nilly, guns a-blazing. We got tired of waiting, so we just shot this guy. And this is just not what happened at all. 911. <laughs> Two, two cop cars to, to Mill Street. Hold on. Hold on. For the people listening, not watching, uh, this is 911 call number one. Najee Seabrooks calls and asks police to come to his residence because he says he's received death threats. I get two cop cars to Mill Street. I need your help. Like, I need help back. What ha you have to tell me what happened? What's going on? I received a lot of death threats. Uh, I think some people waiting for me when I walk out. So I need help. I'm going to escort it to my car. So. Okay. Um, who are you receiving death threats from? 
people. Dangerous people. What's your phone number? What apartment are you in? Can you send two, please? Tell me some news to you. All right, we're going to get somebody out there as soon as we can. All right, thank you. Okay, so what you hear is a lot of background noise in the comm center. That's kind of showing how quiet Mr. Seabrooks is when he calls 911, but he essentially says, I have an emergency here. There's uh, people here threatening me. Can you send a police officer fast? Again, as a 911 dispatcher, what I'm hearing is a disconnect between the information he's giving me and the way that his affect seems to be responding to the situation. Normally when people are asking for fast action and saying uh, that there's an emergency, they tend to be excited. Not always, but it's one thing I'm noticing about the call, Drew. <clears throat> this is something that I, we discussed this the other day. I, I, the, the people that are watching or listening right now don't have the, the benefit of the conversation that we had the other day, but dispatchers are OG body-worn camera veterans. Like when body-worn cameras rolled out, all of the cops had all of these complaints about, and I get it. Look, I mean, you know, the, body-worn cameras are way more intrusive than what a 911 operator has. When body-worn cameras first came out, and there were complaints from the cops that like, my God, every call that we go to, we're going to be recorded. Like there are times that we just discuss things with people that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they're going to be used more to, to hang us or to get us in trouble than they are going to be used to uh, for good purposes. Well, since the dawn of time, these calls have been recorded. So 911 dispatchers have always had to endure that, have always. So that's why you'll hear sometimes on the news like this errant, you know, bad 911 operator who yells and screams at somebody, but or they've got like a party going on in the background. And sometimes on the midnight shift, that's hard to contain when you're in a room full of people and trying to stay awake. And it's 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 you know, it's the manager or supervisor's job to be mindful of that and keep everybody uh, quiet, but it's also their job to keep them awake. So you, you kind of understand why things, you know, are overheard or whatever. So that is a lot of what you're hearing. So we're going to start with a body cam from officer number one. Like I said, she arrives on scene just prior to about eight o'clock. We see her go inside the residence after talking briefly with family. The family escort her into an apartment, which is actually below ground on the first floor. So you'll constantly hear Mr. Seabrooks refer to people as being outside or upstairs. That's where his family will eventually be taken to. But we're going to see our first officer walk into the dwelling, past the family, and go attempt to make contact with Seabrooks. Yeah. It's Patterson Police. What's up? What's your name? Vicky. It's Ramos. Officer. Ramos. Yes, Officer Ramos. It's me. No, of course not. So why you by yourself? I'm not by myself. I have my partner here, Cedric. Cedric. What's going on, bro? We right here. All right, but why did you tell you? I tell you this is a mercy. What, what, what's going on? We don't know what's going on. This is a mercy. People are shot to kill me. First, he, you know, he, he didn't trust that there was just one of them. Then he heard that there were two of them. Then he was kind of angry that there were two of them. So it's, you could tell that he's not in his right mental state. Like, obviously there's something going on. And then, then the conversation turns real quick about 
how people are trying to kill them and and whatnot. I need an escort right now. What, where, where are you trying to go? Get the hell out of here. All right, well, ain't nothing happen to you now. We're here. Where, where are you trying to go? You want to come out and talk to us? No. We are the cops. So he doesn't well, trust you the cops. You got two officers here. We're here right now. Um, <laughs> what do you want my sergeant to do? You want my sergeant to come talk to you? Yeah. All right. Let me see if I can get my sergeant down here. Nine one one. Hello. Okay, so we have two police officers there, and what one tactic that you'll see right away is, is first of all, the problem is for some reason Mr. Seabrook doesn't believe they're police officers. He's called for two police officers to escort him somewhere away from wherever he's at because he's receiving death threats. The one officer introduces herself, and then uh, Seabrooks doesn't believe she's a police officer because why are you here by yourself? He says. Seabrooks does this a couple of times where he claims to be an expert of police tactics or procedure. And I'm not sure if it all gets put into this presentation, but at some point he'll he'll ask other police officers why they're doing what they're doing. You can see that he immediately says, I want to talk to your sergeant or your supervisor. And the police officers don't argue the point with them. They don't say like, why can't you just deal with me? Or, you know, she says, what would you like my sergeant to do? I mean, that's really just another police officer. But Seabrooks continues to dial 911. I'm calling because I've been see Sir, the, the police are there. Well, I I don't believe them. Cause they, they you asked them. for them to come. Those I'm, are the police. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about killing myself now. So send more. Send the big. Nine one one. Where's your emergency? What? Okay. So <laughs> that's that so a that, short call. Uh, it was very short. So you'll see that uh, he says, "I don't believe that's the police." The dispatcher verifies that they're there. Uh, for most people, like when you when you independently call the police yourself, you know you're reaching the police station. The person who answers verified that there's two police officers there, and that wasn't enough for him. And he suddenly changes the situation drastically by saying, "Well, I'm thinking about killing myself." And I don't know if you guys saw that coming, but it seemed like a drastic turn to me. And I, you don't want to downplay those things because of the severity and the seriousness of it. But a lot of times, 911 dispatchers will be on the phone with someone, and all of a sudden, a piece of information like that suddenly gets uttered or said because the person saying it knows that it will increase police response. They'll say, oh, he's got a gun in his hand. He's got a knife in his hand, or I want to kill myself. These things, they know, escalate calls. In fact, I've taken some before where people will tell me that someone has a knife in hand, and then when I tell them the police are right outside, they'll say, oh, the they, they put the knife down, and they're, they're totally calm, but they know that the 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 knife will make the police respond with lights and sirens. Drew, your thoughts? Weapons in general. But, you know, the, the thing is, when somebody says on the phone or in person, when somebody says, okay, well, now I'm thinking of killing myself. Yeah, sometimes it's a tactic to get more attention or sometimes it's a, get, a tactic to get uh, more police presence or, or whatever the reason. Uh, but there's there's no reason to disbelieve them. If somebody tells you they're going to kill uh, kill themselves, you just you kind of have to. Yeah, you uh, you would you be until... you would be wrong to disregard that. And one more thing, as we continue, that we're about to show or play nine one one call number three for you. Everything that that happens in the course of this, I just want to the re part of the reason why we're playing all these is to remind you that whatever's going on with Mister Seabrooks today, whether he's having a mental health crisis or he's having a, a problems with drugs or anything else that might be going on with him, just want to remind you that the police were invited to the situation, that they were not here until Mr. Seabrooks himself called them. And it doesn't mean that the police have license to do what they want after that, 
but he did play place multiple 911 calls asking for police officers to arrive and now more police officers. And their sergeants. And their sergeants. I get a booty to Mill Street. Yeah, apartment. Uh, sir, we have multiple police officers at Mill Street. Are you not speaking to any of the officers that are there? Yeah, but I want to speak to the sergeant. Okay, a, a sergeant is on the way, so you speak to the sergeant, sir. No one right. is trying to hurt you. You have multiple police officers that are that are there already. All right, hold on. You know, I just want to point out that, I mean, everybody I've heard so far has shown, you know, a great degree of empathy. It's easy to get frustrated when people are calling 911 over and over and over for the same thing. You know, there have been times where we've been on a traffic stop with somebody and they've, they've called 911 over and over, you know, because they disagree with what's going on in the car behind them, you know, which is us, you know, the police. So I don't know why they're calling 911. It's not to complain, but. Uh, it's very easy to get frustrated when this is happening. They're they're taking an empathetic tone in the whole thing, and they're telling telling him, "Hey, look, everybody's there. The sergeant's on the way. Just you know, just talk to the people that that are there. You know, it should be a reassurance. Like, trust us. Like, you want the cops there. Those are the cops. You keep calling back asking for more cops, but we're telling you the ones that we sent you are are good. They're they're already there." Well, one thing you're hearing is frustration, but it's also confusion because at one point she says you don't see any police officers. You have to remember there's a disconnect in geography and placement and time for a 911 dispatcher. Sometimes we can send people to places and sometimes they go to the wrong place. Sometimes addresses are bad. Sometimes people get lost, misdirected. Sometimes things are just confusing. So if someone calls 911 and you send them police and the police go 1097 or on scene and they're there for some amount of time, and you're and you're taking calls from the person, the reporting party, over and over again. You know that it seems like contact has not been made between your reporting party and police. Now, 911 dispatchers will typically feel like an incident is more or less stabilized once a police officer or another first responder has made contact with the reporting party. It's very unusual to continue to take calls from a reporting party once you know a police officers on scene, and it's making the 911 dispatcher believe that there's some sort of disconnect in the physical arrival of those police officers, and perhaps they're somewhere else. The I think the body worn camera will kind of solve some of that mystery as well. I mean, you know, spoiler alert: the the, the guy that keeps calling nine one one is behind a closed door, and and they're trying to negotiate with him in in a locked room, a closed door. So, just remember, this, this is what we keep saying, you know, every week, and I think it's important to point out the 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 nine one one emergency call taker does not know what's going on at that scene. Nobody from Nobody is live streaming what what the officers are seeing. No cops are calling up there saying, "Hey, we got them holed up in the hotel in the in the bathroom." So, she's she's the disconnect comes sometimes from natural things like this. Like you do not see police officers there. The answer to that question is no, because I got the door shut, but he's not going to offer that. This is officer number one's body cam. The sergeant arrives and attempts to convince the suspect that she is a sergeant with the Patterson PD, and the suspect refuses to come out. Hey, Sergeant, 
Okay, important point. So whoever is wearing this body camera, you can see it's a very narrow hallway. They can see into the kitchen off to their right. They could see down the hallway off to their left where there is an officer in, in between the officer and the door where the suspect is, is a sergeant who's very calmly and like in a big sister or motherly fashion trying to coax this guy out of there. And the officer just casually says, Sarge, weapon, meaning, hey, this guy's armed. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And she keeps going, meaning I got it. I, I, he I heard you. Or I, I like I know I understand, and, and it, it, just for those listening, she's standing directly in front of the door that he is kind of hiding behind. So that is something to remember as as you watch the rest of this. Thinking about the people in that narrow corridor, there are two bedrooms behind them, and the bathrooms in front of them. That it's close quarters combat if combat has to happen in this hallway, and you'll see many people going down in front of that door and finding out how the situation ends. I want you to remember all the people who eventually stand in front of that door because in some sense, they're all in danger. I want to say I'm very impressed by this sergeant who shows up, takes command of the situation and the way that she talks to him. At first, I thought she had some negotiations background and perhaps she does, but she's just a very good sergeant. Uh, multiple times she calls him honey and sweetie and things like this. She's trying to build a bond with the guy to understand that uh, she's a police officer there. She's there to help. What Seabrooks asks for is some rather bizarre things, identification. She wants a badge or a patch slid under the door. And of course, the sergeant's not able to do that. Drew, go ahead. Just to, to paint another picture, the, the apartment is not that big. And so the, the corridor we're looking at, if John and I were standing in the doorway, or I'm sorry, if John and I were standing in the, the corridor, we wouldn't fit shoulder to shoulder, especially with that glorious beard he has. Hey, you, babe. Say it again. No, I'm a cop, honey. I've been doing this for 20 years. Born and raised in Paris, and I still live here. But I'm not here, listen, I'm not here to assume or to judge you, okay? You don't know me, I don't know you. I'm trying to have you understand that we're here for, for your well-being, to make sure that you're okay. That's it. Okay? Your family and your loved ones are out here, and they're worried about you. They're concerned. You said you wanted a sergeant, you got one. It's, it's always a good kind of tactic, and John, you could speak to this more, to remind them that they have family here, to remind them that we're here to help them and not hurt them, and just, you know, present that calm demeanor, uh, but, but especially to kind of involve the family like you have something more to live for. What they typically will call that for a hostage negotiation standpoint is hooks and triggers. Sometimes it's hard to know if talking about family is going to be a hook or a trigger because in a suicidal situation, and perhaps we need to think of this one as, as one because he did make that threat. We don't know if family troubles are the reason for someone's uh, suicidal ideation or if they're the thing that would give them hope in that situation. It's presumed throughout the rest of the call that uh, family is important to Mr. Seabrook. Certainly his mother and other family members are there acting in caring ways. And Seabrooks himself has other family members that are not present who are very important to him. Go ahead, Drew. Uh, hooks and triggers, by the way, sounds like a house of ill repute. Come on, where's your emergency? Uh, whoa. So this is 911 call number four. He continues to call 911, even with the sergeant on the other side of the door trying to convince him. Sir, Mill Street, you, you're... Well, I'll be a standoff in this motherfucker because it's crazy around here. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Sir, but what do you want me to do on a phone line when officers are actually there? 
speak to them, please. They... Officers here. I, I said I want an officer. I need a sergeant. Okay, and the sergeant is there, sir. How are you? How are you not seeing anybody? I have one, two, three, four, four officers that are out there with even. Because I'm not coming out. Yeah, I'm gonna be on the news. So fuck. Sir, hold on one second, okay? Hold on, okay? Give me one second. I'm gonna talk to the officers for you. Hold on. Do not hang up. Give me a second, okay? So he, he's he's saying things like I'm gonna be on the news and and you know, it, it's it's going downhill. The negotiations, whatever they're trying, is not working. It's not like they need to escalate from a force standpoint, but they need to kind of whatever tricks up their sleeve they have. They need to kind of start throwing them down. I just want to remind the listeners that the news reported that he had been barricaded in his apartment for hours and only moments after the police arrived and uh, gained entry to the apartment did they shoot Mr. Najee Seabrooks. And it was implied that very little was done to talk to him or figure out what was going on with him. And we can even see so far that two police officers arrived. Both of them tried to talk to him. Both officers tried to switch off to see if he could build a rapport with either one. The sergeant arrived. So far, no rapport. He's still continuing to call 911 because he's still not getting what he wants. And a tip of the hat to my partner, Jonathan, who who whittled down probably about four hours worth of footage and 911 calls into this presentation that you're seeing now. I mean, we're doing this for brevity's sake and for the relevance because these negotiations sometimes take forever and ever and ever. And it, it requires a lot of patience, but obviously we don't have the time to just sit there and watch the whole thing. This, by the way, is going to be officer number one's body cam again. The suspect still doesn't believe the police. There's an ambulance that arrives on scene. Often they're in a safer place. Like you'll see, I think they, the rescue crew is kind of standing in the kitchen or hanging in the kitchen Sometimes we will use that rescue crew, and I don't know how it is in New Jersey. It may be that they're dual certified as law enforcement and rescue, but uh, sometimes we'll use them to do the talking. I mean, if they can, if they know that there's a medical issue going on or a mental health issue where they need to get them to the hospital, and they can convince them that they're not in trouble, that you know they have no arrest powers, they're just there to help them. Sometimes that's that works in your favor. Hi, let's go. Najee, my name is Firefighter Broadfield. I'm with the Patterson Fire Department. I'm an EMT here. I'm here to help. Want to go to the hospital to go get help? Huh? I'm here to help to take you to the hospital to go get help to go talk to someone. I don't want to go to the hospital. I need, I need water and a charger. Najee, listen. Listen, Najee, you want water? You want a charger? You got to give us something back. Okay, it's a give and take, Najib. You can't just keep asking for stuff. You said you wanted to kill yourself, we're here to help you. Okay, how do you want to go about hurting yourself? Are you under taking medication? What are we doing? You got a gun and two knives. So we have quite a few critical things going on there. He's he's started making demands. You know, he said that he wanted a bottle of water and he wants other things. This is uh, classic uh, barricaded subject, almost hostage type situations. You have to think of it as a hostage situation and that he's threatened to harm himself. He's essentially taken himself hostage. And that's why we would call this a hostage negotiation, a barricaded subject. It's a crisis event that a negotiator would respond to. But uh, the sergeant's absolutely correct. She says, you know, this is a give and take situation. You can't just keep making demands of us. Now, why would we give in to certain demands? To build patterns of cooperative behavior so that we show that we 